Eddie Chavez Calderon here uh, with Arizona Jews for Justice. Happy to present today's event on the death penalty, an important topic as we talk today and we see um, how do we really, like how do we take a moral stance on this? Where do we come from? Uh, especially in our Judaism. So I'm so blessed that we're gonna be able to start with my great mentor, Rabbi Shmuley Yankowitz, who's gonna give us a little bit of Torah to get us going, to get us in rhythm. And then we have our great friend here, um, Abraham Bonowitz, uh, who is just an amazing organizer and communicator and strategist uh, within the movement to end the death penalty for nearly 30 years. He's also been on the journey to maintain health and fitness for his entire adult life. He knows it's not easy, which is why he jumped on a chance to be a part of a healthy, uh, healthy campaign team. If you want to learn more about him, follow him on Facebook, on his pages. Um, he's a co-director of DPA, uh, slash Health Campaign Associated Death Penalty Action and uh, Healthy Campaign. Make sure to follow them on Facebook, follow them uh, to stay in touch with all their work. First, we're going to start with my great mentor, Rabbi Shmuley Yankowitz, to share some Torah. Then we're going to have Q&A section at the end, closer to the end of the programming. Uh, please feel free to ask any questions on there. I will be reading them uh, if, if you don't feel comfortable. If you do, go ahead and unmute yourself at the Q&A section. Without further uh, delay, let's go ahead and start with some great Torah. Rabbi Shmuley, uh, go ahead and take it away. Amazing. Thank you, Eddie. Great to see everyone. Thanks for being with us. And um, it's great to start this Monday with some learning. And I, uh, it's great to be here with, with Eddie, as always, and Abe, uh, Abe, who's been at the forefront of, of this fight, and my friend Cantor Mike Zussman, who is, uh, who is uh, emphatically... Uh, uh, taking a stand on a, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and all of you, thank you. It's great to see so many friends here who are, are coming out to learn. And we're gonna bracket the question, the debate of in an abstract ideal setting, um, do we believe in a place for a just, you know, a death penalty or not? And say that when, when we know the system is broken, when we know there, there are our mistakes, inaccuracies, injustices. What do we do with such a system? And, and so Abe is, has so much to share on the practical side um, of what is happening and what that looks like and how often it's happening. So any questions you have, he is really your expert. And just to reflect from a Jewish perspective where of course there's a tension in Jewish thought because in the Torah, it's very clear the death penalty is permitted. Right? It's very clear the death penalty is permitted, but we are not a people of the book, as, as some people say. Um, we have an evolving tradition, and part of that evolution uh, comes to show the difficulties and the complexities with such a model. The most famous source that is often quoted in, from, the, from the Talmud, the Tractate of Makot, is, uh, is how often one is killed. And uh, Rabbi Tarfon famously says, geez, if it was every 70 years if somebody was killed, um, this would be a problematic, this would be a problematic court. Um, and, and Rabbi Kiva comes and says um, uh, that basically no one, no one would be executed. And so we see this debate as it merges as to how rare such, such, an, such a practice could be used, um, if ever. And, um, and then on the opposite side, not only the low ta'ase, what we should not do, but on the ase, what we should do, it says famously in Proverbs, in Mishle, you should rescue those taken off to death. You should proactively rescue. Um, and we live in a, in a country where Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, um, 
we have we can trust it's a Medina Shel Chesed. It's a it's a country of kindness in many ways, and we can trust the procedural justice in many ways. And so we're left with a with a with a sense of brokenness that emerges from such a reality of um, systemic racism and 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 poverty and inaccuracies that can emerge. And what do we do as Jews about that? What do we do as Jews understanding this, knowing that every human being is created but Selim Elohim in the, in the image of God? And while someone can lose their social dignity, they can lose the rights to just wander around society. If you kill someone, you lose the right to wander around society. You have to go to, to, uh, to a place of incarceration. Nonetheless, there is, uh, you can lose your social dignity. You can't lose your human dignity. And so you, there's some fundamental aspect of the self uh, where torture can't be in, in, in engaged. There are limits to how we treat someone. Uh, and actually, one of the places we learn that is where the Torah itself allows for death penalty, where someone was a murderer, and it was totally clear, and they were actually put to death. They are to be buried immediately after, um, because that is to show that, um, that they still have dignity. They still have dignity. And so we end up trans, uh, transcending that period of time, uh, just like the Torah transcended slavery, just like it transcended um, uh, human sacrifice, like it transcended animal sacrifice, there continues to be a motion of progress forward. So I'm excited to hear from Abe about his thinking, his experience on the, uh, uh, on the Jewish side, on the interfaith side, and what's happening in America now. And then we'll have a chance to open it up for questions and comments, and I'll be here to wrestle with some, some of the Jewish textual stuff, and Kent Resistance here as well. And... Uh, and uh, Abe, let's, let's hand it over to you. Uh, excited to see you again. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be with you all today. And also my colleague and friend, uh, uh, Mike Zussman is here at Cantry. Mike has really dived in deep on this issue since we first connected last May um, around an execution that was going on. And we created a, a, an online vigil in which, uh, which Mike participated in. And, and actually he's taken it like all the way. So, uh, but I wanna back up before we hear a little bit from Mike and share it with people that um, first, I've not always opposed the death penalty. And if you're not sure where you're at yet on a pragmatic uh, um, secular side of it, you know, the Jewish teaching aside, um, understand that that's okay. It's for each of us to understand and come to come to understand the system uh, before we take a decision on how it functions or whether it functions sufficiently for us. Um, for me, the first time I was confronted with this issue, uh, I said an eye for an eye. I said, this is the United States. We have the best justice system in the world. If that includes the death penalty, fine with me. I'll pull the switch myself. That's what I thought, it's what I believed. I really had not explored the issue. And in setting out to prove those anti-death penalty people wrong, I found, found out that everything I believed about the death penalty, the truth was the opposite. And I thought, it was, I thought it was cheaper to kill them. Turns out it's a lot more expensive. I thought we had a system that was fair. And for me, that was uh, the real challenge was, was coming to understand the unfairness of the system. What made me um, join, uh, what made me shift my position entirely was learning that what matters more than the severity of the crime is race and money and politics and particular geography. Now, what do I mean when I say that? 
the first time I was confronted with this issue, it made me literally jump from one side of the fence to the other. When somebody said, look, I live in Ohio, and they were using Ohio information, and said, if you're going to kill somebody in Ohio, just don't do it in Franklin County, Cuyahoga County, or Hamilton County. That's Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati. The, the counties with the big cities, which have a large tax base and can therefore afford a death penalty trial. If you can't afford the death penalty trial, you're not even going to get a death sentence. It's not impossible. And this is true in the vast majority of counties in this country. In fact, you, if you really want to measure the death penalty and how it's used, you can't look at it. <coughs> excuse me. You can't look at it by state. You have to look at it by counties. And then you see that there's really a handful. You know, between 2010 and 2015, only 16 counties had more than a couple of death sentences across the whole country. And the vast majority of counties have never had a death sentence. Um, and that doesn't mean there's not been a murder there. It means that it's not possible. Uh, or there are other reasons why they're not seeking a death sentence. Uh, but for me, that was the thing that made me jump from one side of the fence to the other. And then I started saying, well, gosh, if we could make it fair and equal, then okay. But until it's fair and equal, we need to stop executing people. Uh, and then I got involved with a program called the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing, which at that time was a project of another organization called Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation, which is led by murder victim family members who oppose the death penalty. The Journey became its own organization, again, led by murder victim family members who oppose the death penalty and joined by the families of people on death row and the families of the executed and people who were wrongly convicted and exonerated after spending time on death row. Um, and, and together we put a face on this issue of people who have actually got what I like to call voices of experience on the death penalty. They're not people like me who come at it you know, I fell into this through hearing a speaker and getting more and more interested. Uh, but these are people who are dragged into it, not voluntarily. And I like to say the facts changed my head and the journey changed my heart. It's coming to understand this full collateral damage of the death penalty. What it does when we say to a victim family, wait till we kill the guy, then you'll feel better. But it's gonna take us two or three decades to the point of, uh, of us executing them. Or on the other side, what we do to the family of the person who's being executed. And I guarantee you, the person who's being executed is not the same person two decades later that they were when they committed a horrible crime. Okay. And nobody is saying that people should not be held accountable or that we can't be safe from people without executions. In fact, well, that's what we are saying is that we can be safe from dangerous offenders, from people who've committed horrible crimes. Uh, who may or may not still be dangerous, but we can hold them accountable and be safe from them without executions. It's what we do the vast majority of the time. Uh, and that's the other piece of the victim family piece was just, you know, the reality is that we don't even seek a death sentence where we catch somebody. We don't seek a death sentence in most cases. When they do seek a death sentence, they don't always get it. When they do get a death sentence, often it's overturned during the appeals process, not the conviction, but the sentence. And then they go back and get another sentence, which is usually a death by incarceration instead of death by execution. So people like to call it life without the possibility of parole, but I like to say death by incarceration or death by imprisonment, because that's really what it is. You're never coming out until you're dead. Um, 
And for those who are vengeance minded or public safety minded, okay, there it is. So, you know, those are the pragmatic pieces, but I didn't know what the Jewish perspective was until I was confronted with the opportunity to actually share that. I had gone to a march called the Lighting the Torch of Conscience March. This was in 1990. It was a march from Stark, Florida to Atlanta, Georgia. And they were, it was led by, by faith communities. And they were doing a big uh, event at Martin Luther King's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta at the end of it. And all the different perspectives were gonna be shared. Lots of big shots from different organizations, you know, the ACLU and Amnesty International and, and uh, um, the NAACP and the Southern Center for Human Rights and uh, SCLC and all kinds of, and of other organizations. And then they had clergy of various sorts also speaking. Uh, well, the rabbi who was supposed to speak that night uh, got called away. It was some emergency in the community that he had to deal with. So I was asked, well, uh, <laughs> the way it happened was I was sitting with the in front of the organizer's desk when he was on the phone. He hung up and he said, yeah, great, where am I going to find another Jewish guy? And I said, well, I'm Jewish. What can I, uh, can I help? I didn't even know what it needed. And he said, well, can you speak about the Jewish perspective on the death penalty? And I said, can I make a few phone calls? <laughs> and, and he said, sure, there's the phone. This is in 19, uh, 1990. So before cell phones and before, uh, before the internet even. Um, hard to imagine that, isn't it? Uh, so I called my mom who's a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary in America. I called out four or five other rabbis that I know uh, of various persuasions, various parts of the, of the you know, Orthodox conservative reform. Each of them gave me another little piece of the puzzle and I was able to then make a speech that night during which I basically said, look, you know, Jewish law, uh, Jews don't go by the fundamental interpretation of the scriptures. Okay, we go by the current rabbinic interpretation. And Rabbi, can I correct me if I say anything that's not quite right, but, but uh, we go by the current rabbinic Jewish interpre uh, interpretation of the scriptures. And for over a thousand years, that has been that the death penalty exists, but it's meant to be a scare tactic. It's not meant for us to use it. And because it's not meant for us to use it, it has been, you know, so many preconditions have been put in place in order to prevent the possibility of a halachic execution, an execution according to Jewish law. Uh, so what are some of those things? For example, uh, you have to, if you're about to kill somebody, in order to face the death penalty, you're going, you have to uh, be warned by someone not related to you or, well, actually by two people not related to you, each other, or the victim, the potential victim, that if you do this, you might get executed, you might face a death penalty. So you have to have a clear understanding that the death penalty exists. And if you do that, you might get it. Uh, that's one of the preconditions of more than 230. Uh, another one was that you had to be convicted by a, a unanimous Sanhedrin, a 23 rabbi Sanhedrin or rabbinic court. And, and it had to be unanimous, right? So as the saying goes, try to get 23 Jews to agree on anything. 
and right there is your prevention on uh, the possibility of uh, of an executioner. So there was that, and I gave those examples in particular uh, because I felt like they were easy to understand. There's many, many more, um, but those were the ones that I shared at that time, and and that's been since then. You know, my understanding, and I and I actually enjoy it a lot when I'm in a conversation with people uh, and somebody says an eye for an eye and I my first question to them is well hey are you Jewish and usually they say no and I said well look if you're going to talk about Hebrew scriptures then you've got to look at what the, how the Jewish law looks at it how the rabbis look at it uh, but what are you a Christian and usually they say yes and I said well are you familiar with what Jesus talked about and, and then I get into that whole piece but for Jews for us, Jewish law is how it is, is the governing piece of this. And Jewish law basically puts into place so many preconditions that you can never have an execution according to Jewish law. Now, one more piece. If we actually met all those preconditions within a, uh, the, the context of a Sanhedrin, then okay, maybe. But the reality is that the way contemporary law is in the states and in the country of the United States right now, we don't even meet the basic uh, norms, the basis, the basic preconditions for fairness that must be in place. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Dale Resinella, wrote a book called The Biblical Truth About America's Death Penalty. And out of that, it's like, it's a big thick book like this thick. He brought it down to what he calls the biblical scorecard. And he looks at the Hebrew scriptures and the gospels and he takes out of them about the 40 places where the death penalty is called for and the preconditions that must be in place that he looks at. And he, can he compares what's in the scriptures, what's in the Bible, what's in the Torah, what's in the, the gospels, and, and asks the question, does this meet, does US contemporary law meet the standards set forth in the Bible? And the answer is in all of those cases, no, it does not. So for those who want to hang their hat on the death penalty on what the scriptures teach and what their faith teaches them, then you know there's no basis for that because we don't meet the, 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 the important guidelines for fairness that are spelled out in the scriptures. So that's how I came to my, that's my kind of my, my faith wrap on the issue. Um, so First, I want to stop and just say, are there any questions or anything you want to add to that, Shmuley? And we need to introduce Cantra uh, uh, Zussman as well and give him a moment to share his entree into this issue uh, and you know, all. But first, any questions? Okay. Uh, I know Eddie was going to moderate that Q&A piece of it. So, um, Let's see, is Michael available to come in at this point? Hey, thank, thank you so much for that. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. You can, okay. I switched, okay, uh, as long as you can hear me. Uh, just a brief introduction. Uh, thank you for the honor of being here. Um, my name is uh, Cantor Mike Zeusman. I'm um, a former prison chaplain. I served as a prison chaplain in Canada uh, for three years. And um, 
briefly my story growing up, um, I was for uh, the, uh, the, the death penalty. And um, a lot of that was informed by my feeling that um, the people who killed my family members in, uh, in the Shoah, in the Holocaust, um, deserved, uh, deserved death and that there's a place for that. Um, and I must say that uh, really the things that shifted my position more than anything were a college roommate of mine who ended up at Sing Sing and who I followed through the prison system. And that experience in turn led me to become a prison chaplain and to see and to know and meet people who had committed unspeakable things and who, as Abe has said, very often are very different than the people who committed those actions decades before. And so with that experience in my mind and reflecting on on my, uh, my background um, uh, as a third generation Holocaust survivor, I started thinking a lot, very deeply, personally, about the role of, of state-sponsored killings, the role of government killings. Now, I want to be very careful here and say, um, Lahavdil, there is a great difference between, uh, uh, between state-sponsored killings that led to the decimation of, of my family and my people in Europe and um, in other places throughout the world. And there is the similarity of the state putting people to death. And I, I can't help but tell you that in my mind, it is clear as day. And I can only speak for myself in this way. Yes, I, I, I've developed this, um, we've developed this Jewish abolitionist society, which now has 275 members. Yes, we've developed um, an amazing um, litany of, um, of speeches and resources provided by leaders in the Jewish community from across the Jewish world that are available on the Death Penalty Action website. And you can see a great video with my teacher, Rabbi Shmuley, there, where he calls for a spiritual revolution. And I must say, what Rabbi Shmuley said at the beginning of this um, session, that yes, we are informed by, by our scripture, but we are not fully people of the book. We are the products of an evolving tradition. I celebrate my Judaism. I do. I try to move from oi to joy. And yet I cannot ignore the role of the Holocaust in my life and how it affected my family. And for me, it's, it's just a no brainer. The government should not be allowed to kill its prisoners, let alone when, they, when those 4%, it's believed, are actually innocent. But let's put that aside for now. The idea of state-sponsored killing, I have to say never again to that. I really do. And I know this is controversial. And I know people, look, this is my family we're talking about. I'm not saying that my family members who died were, were murderers who did awful things. Of course not. Lahavdil. But the government killing them and killing prisoners, that we cannot let that happen. And so that's what that's really at the core. That's what drives me to this spiritual revolution that Rabbi Shmuley talked about. Again, I can only speak for myself here, but I want to thank you for, for this time. And um, I'm open to questions as well. Thank you, Shmuley. And, and, you know, or not Shmuley, but uh, Mike, um, <laughs> I want to uh, uh, just let people know you know, the context of why we're having this conversation right now. Uh, and 
and there's actually a little bit of th a few things I want to show you on our on our Facebook page too. But but just be before we do that, you know, the context is that uh, up until July 14th, there had not been a federal execution. Uh, by the, the federal government. And what do I mean by that? Uh, states can choose to have a death penalty and then the federal government has a death penalty and the military has a death penalty. We have not had a, an execution under the current military law. And uh, prior to July 14th of this year, we the last time there had been a federal execution was in 2003. Okay, and there were three federal executions under uh, President George W. Bush. Prior to that, there had been no federal executions until, you know, all the way back to John F. Kennedy, who had one, and prior to him, Eisenhower had eight in his whole four, in, in his whole two-year term uh, in office, or two terms, uh, eight years in office. And prior to that, President Truman had seven executions in his uh, eight years in office. And prior to that, uh, Roosevelt had a total of 17 in his time in office. But now, since July 14th, we have had eight executions, federal executions under the current president. And, uh, and, and now there's five more set. In fact, the one that just took place this past Thursday uh, was the first time since 1889 131 years since the last time we had a federal execution under a lame duck president who was ending his term. And, and I know some people may not be ready to accept that President Trump is lame duck, but I think the writing is on the wall there. And this is not about the politics of it. It's about the fact that we're doing it uh, when we don't need to and especially in context of the next administration being uh, actually committed to abolishing the federal death penalty and to providing incentives for states to get rid of it. So that's the, the context that we're in. And I wanna share my screen uh, for a moment. Actually, first to back up to this context. So Mike has gotten himself involved and begun to correspond as a chaplain and a chaplain's voice to some of these people who've been uh, set up for execution. It used to be you had to have four months of notice. Now it's as little as 20 days uh, notice. And that's not really enough time for lawyers to jump in. And that's part of the challenge of, of lawyering in an era of COVID, which has uh, become a clear problem for proper representation, especially with the next person who's scheduled to be executed. Her name is Lisa Montgomery. She committed an awful, awful crime. Um, and she also is severely mentally ill, uh, such that it's really hard for her lawyers to connect with her on video calls like what we're doing now. They need to go and see her. Well, that's what they did when her date was announced to be executed on, on, a, on December 8th. And now they've got COVID and she has ostensibly a stay uh, just on the issue of, you know, her lawyers being too sick to put together her clemency case. Um, so that's part of what the context is here. But uh, so, so Mike connected with Christopher Vialva first, who was executed on September 
24th, and then Orlando Hall, uh, and probably others he can tell us. But Orlando Hall, the interesting thing, he began, Mike began corresponding, and Orlando uh, is, uh, grew up Christian, but was a, um, was, uh, had converted to Islam in prison. And, uh, and, and Mike started corresponding with this, um, this Muslim guy on death row in federal prison who did not have a spiritual advisor and asked Mike to help him. So we ended up helping find the spiritual advisor who a Muslim cleric to be with him, which I found pretty amazing that a couple of Jews helped find a Muslim uh, cleric to, to help. So anyway, Mike, can you share a little bit more about uh, your experience with these prisoners who've been executed? And, and yeah, just briefly, because we don't have a ton of time, but, uh, but I do want to share that actually later on today, we'll have a video out uh, of Mike getting deep into this, reading some of the words of these guys. And also the other night when he was being executed, actually singing in his beautiful cantorial voice, the 23rd Psalm as uh, as part of the vigil, the prayerful vigil that we had prior to that execution. So, Mike? Sure. Thank you, Abe. Um, again, it's, it's part of the, the, having been a prison chaplain and knowing that people do horrible things, um, but it doesn't make them the, the face of evil. And I use that phrase very intentionally. The prosecutor for Orlando Hall in 1994, when he committed his crime, he said, he looked at him and he said, that is the face of evil. I believe that killing is the face of evil. And the Orlando Hall, the Shaqib Wali, that was his Muslim name that I got to know through our multiple correspondences from the day he got his death, his death warrant until his execution was somebody who was penitent, who was repentant, somebody who um, had become an entirely different human being and, um, and that's the person we killed. And so uh, time and again, just like the people I saw in the prison system when I worked there, people who had committed horrible thing, horrible actions, but um, in Canada, there is no death penalty. And so they didn't face that. But, but with Orlando Hall, he did. With Christopher Vialva in his letters to me, wishing me with, with, with Hebrew because he identified with aspects of, of Judaism wishing me beautifully uh, the, the blessing of shalom ve'ahava, of peace and love. He had no, um, both of them knew that, that, that their time was coming. Uh, I don't believe that they had any illusions that they would be able to be spared, and yet they shared this love with me. And Orlando, when I asked him to, to, to if he wanted to draft an op-ed that could put the word out to say anything that he wanted to about the death penalty, the first thing that he wrote about was his repentance for what he did. So um, again, for me, it's a further extension of, of humanity, of the humanity of chaplaincy work. And, and that's why I do what I do. And we all need to be aware of that, that these are human beings who've done awful things, but they're human beings. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and again, um, there's other videos where we can get much deeper into some of this. And I want to share a couple of things. But first, I want to acknowledge uh, uh, Rosetta and 
Sochiti, am I saying that right? Uh, Sochil, okay, thank you for putting that uh, in, in the chat here on the Zoom. And I'm not sure, I'm not able to monitor what's on the, the Facebook chat, but the chat here in the Zoom, they've noted one of those federal executions, which was actually added in after they did the first three. They added in the case of, of Lesmond Mitchell, um, a, a Navajo man who committed this crime on Navajo uh, uh, tribal lands, uh, the victims were Navajo. Uh, the Navajo president and vice president appealed to the US president for clemency in this case. Uh, but even back when the crime occurred, <clears throat> the victim's family said they didn't want the death penalty and uh, the Navajo nation uh, was circumvented. They went around them and found a, uh, a loophole, a way to charge Lesmond Mitchell and a way to get him a death sentence so they could execute him. And that execution was one of two that took place during the week of the Republican National Convention. So it's pretty stunning. We've had eight executions now. Uh, there's five more set. And then we get to get to a place of... Uh, of um, maybe having a conversation about doing away with the federal death penalty, just as we are in many states with doing away with it at the state level. Um, but I wanna share my screen for a moment and show you uh, just what, uh, let's see if I can do this right. Uh, there we go. Um, so we have, uh, uh, this is the webpage of Death Penalty Action and it's a deathpenaltyaction.org. And you can just scroll all the way down to the bottom here and where it has Jewish resources and actions and find uh, uh, a video with Rabbi Shmuley, who's, you know, does about 10 or 12 minutes on uh, Jewish perspectives and, and what he was calling for. And then there's all kinds of resources here, uh, things that you can link on to find. And, and I want to just draw your attention to that so you can find, uh, in particular down here, there's uh, this guy, Jew several Jewish people, I think eight or so that are on death row across the country. And you know, so this is the Jewish resources section. There's also things to sign. So if you're part of an organization, there's a sign on letter, there's a petition for individuals to sign. If you're a clergy or a lay leader in a community, there's a, a faith leader letter to sign. So that's all on the Jewish resources page. And then back over to the main front page is where we have, uh, I want to share this video with you quickly, which is just sort of set up what's happening. Uh, and this is where you can go to find the different petitions to sign. But let's see if this will work here. Uh, give me a thumbs up if we can hear it uh, as the volume. You good? Today, we are asking for abolishing the federal death penalty. While we are in the midst of a national reckoning on racial injustice, abolishing the death penalty must be a part of that debate and that discourse because this is a racial justice issue. My name is Roderick Reed. I'm the brother of Rodney Reed, an instrumental Texas death row. The 
is a great need for people to get involved and realize what's going on. These state-sanctioned murders, these federal-sanctioned murders, they are just that, they're murders. When it comes to the death penalty, we stand alone among our peers, our peer nations around the world. And we're usually in the top 10, sometimes the top five of the most executions in the world. Donald Trump uh, has now executed five in the last couple months. He's got one scheduled for today and he's got one scheduled for Thursday. The death penalty's gotta come to an end. It's gotta come to an end now. We gotta make noise. We gotta, we gotta be louder about this. Once people understand this is happening, they oppose it immediately. Some people think it just, you know, was shelved in the past. Well, this administration is trying to take us back. We're not gonna let them take us back. This is our country. The death penalty is inhumane, and we should not have it in these United States of America. The death penalty only creates another grieving family, another victim, and furthers the cycle of violence. I believe that the best way to honor my brother, Paul, who was murdered, is to work for the prevention of violence, not to replicate it. The death penalty is not necessary. We know that we can be safe from dangerous offenders and hold them accountable without executions. It's what we do the vast majority of the time. My son had three execution dates and there were three dates where he was to be released. It is an emotional roller coaster. No family should have to live through. We are all more than the worst thing we have ever done. It is not easy to stand here before you and talk on these issues. You know, while my brother is still on death row, we've been fighting for his life for almost 24 years, but it is a must that I do so. It is a must that we come together as a community and fight. How we as a society treat those who are at the lowest level, the condemned, the guilty, that is the greatest reflection on who we are as human beings. So join us and please support this cause. There are real lives at stake. I seek to enlist all of you as community builders in this third reconstruction to truly build a world that is more equitable, that is more just, that sees and affirms the humanity of everyone. Here's the good news. A majority of Americans want to see alternatives to the death penalty. So this is the time to rise up. Join us at Death Penalty Action. Go to our website, support what we're doing, join some of our public actions. This is a time that we need to raise our voices for life and we need to stand against death in every ugly manifestation it has, including state executions and federal executions in America. So that's, uh, it really puts it all into just four minutes. So what we're about 
this opportunity to uh, to organize and come together. We've built a coalition. Uriel Etzedek is part of that coalition, uh, and we're so grateful to have a, a partnership. Uh, but so far, more than 200 organizations, including synagogues and churches and all kinds of organizations, have uh, signed on as partners in this. And our mission, our goal, is to just build a constituency of support to uh, representatives, members of the House of Representatives and senators, U.S. senators, so that when the opportunity comes up to bring a bill, uh, which could happen early in the next Congress, uh, we're actually calling for it to happen in the first 100 days. A lot of it's going to depend on what the leadership is in the U.S. Senate, but certainly they can move things in the House and, and just get that conversation going. But it's going to be on all of us to do what we can do in all of us, whether you're a, um, whether you're a citizen or not, whether you're 18 or older or younger, it doesn't matter if you live here, these people represent you. And therefore you can write letters to our Congress people. And that's what we're asking everybody to do is organize and write letters to our Congress people to sign the petitions, to sign the letter writing actions, um, to, to actually get out a piece of paper and an envelope and a stamp, remember those things, and write a little handwritten note, I live in your district, you are my representative, I want you to oppose the death penalty, and put that in the mail to your congressional representative. We're asking everybody to do that, uh, because what we know is that you know, once you study this issue and come to understand it, even if you believe there are people who deserve whatever they get coming, we can't trust government with the power to kill, and we shouldn't. Uh, and, and the other thing that we know is that we don't have to change anybody's mind. We just have to find the people that agree with us and get them to do something. So there's lots of different ways to help. There's lots of different ways to organize, and that's what you'll find on our webpage at deathpenaltyaction.org. So uh, we're ready for questions or further comments. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, such an interesting uh, topic. And I share the same sentiments as uh, Rabbi Shmuley with that video. So inspiring um, and, and just so emotional. We're gonna start off with our first question. Do you believe mail is more effective uh, with legislators than email? Uh, I, that's just what I was talking about. It absolutely is. The most effective thing you could do is if you actually have a personal relationship with a uh, state or, or, or federal legislator, uh, sometimes you do. The last place I lived before I moved back to Ohio, I lived in Maryland, where three of my state legislators actually lived in my community, and I would bump into them in the farmer's market and places like that. Uh, so if you can actually have a relationship with them, beautiful. Next step, start that relationship, call and speak with their aide, but putting a piece of paper in the mail, a postal, that's like worth a thousand emails. Okay, they get that people are paying attention. And if, if you can um, uh, get five or 10 other people, get a minion in your show to, to write their letters, that's, that's huge. And, it's, and the impact is great. And I'll give you one more quick example. 
I was the field manager in New Jersey in 2007. We abolished the death penalty in New Jersey. It was the first state to legislatively repeal its death penalty since 1964. Well, my own legislator, I wrote her a letter, of course, and, and so she, um, this is Senator Diane Allen, uh, she never told us where she was gonna be on the bill, uh, whether she would vote with us or not. But when it was over and she did vote for us, she wrote to everybody that had written to her. And what she said is that she had received over 200 pieces of mail in the postal mail asking her to vote for that bill. And fewer than 10 had asked her to vote against it. The rest had asked her to vote for it. And so that's 200 people, a little bit over 200 people that had actually written to her out of 70,000 people in her district. Okay, most people are not paying attention. Most people are not paying attention on this issue. So just if just the people that are watching us today were to write to their, and we all lived in the same place, were to write to our one legislator, I believe me, the impact of that would be great. Thank you. Um, this is from Mylene. She says, I'm blessed to belong to both a Catholic church and a reformed shul. I'm so disappointed in their lack of passionate activism on this topic. What should our religious communities look like? I'm in uh, uh, Chicago, or uh, I'm not sure what city is, and I'm grateful we don't have a state death penalty. Uh, if that's Chicago, we abolished the death penalty in Chicago in 2011. Um, one of the jobs they gave me in that campaign was to work with the, the, the Jewish clergy. And in fact, it, there was an Orthodox uh, legislator in the Illinois legislature who was not with us. And they said, Abe, can you figure out? And I actually um, just started talking to people and I found, I got the rabbi at the Aleph Institute, which does prisoners, uh, prisoner ministry, uh, called up this, he said, just give me a few minutes. He called the guy, talked to him, and called me back 15 minutes later and said, you've got his vote. So it, it was really that kind of organizing. So what do we do in our own home communities? I mean, the first step is really give people the opportunity uh, on this or other issues. So many people, you know, and especially right now with COVID, it's all next to, it's very difficult to, to have these conversations and to do organizing, but hopefully soon when we can all be back together, invite a speaker, um, have a conversation with the clergy person, whether it's the priest or the rabbi or whomever, rabbi, what is our, I mean, just ask, what does, what does our community teach about this? And if, if you're at a reform synagogue, then gosh, you've got True Awe, you've got the RAC, the Religious Action Center, uh, all ready to go on these issues um, and, and ready to hand over actual things to do on social justice issues. So you can invite those things in and then really take it on yourself to organize uh, uh, an event, ask the rabbi or the cantor or somebody to, to come and be a part of it. But but really, the, I think Shmule or, or, or Mike can speak more to this, but you know our clergy are really busy people. So they're, I think, happy to have somebody else take some piece of leadership in the community, uh, as long as it's within the structure of the community and do it so you could step up and the same thing in the catholic church even more so because in cat in catholicism they have now moved to a place where the catholic teaching is there is no place at all for the death penalty and pope francis very recently came out with a whole new um I forget what they call it, but uh, a new catechism, that's it, that, that basically says no space ever at all for the death penalty. And 
even since Pope John Paul II and then Benedict after him, actually Benedict was my favorite because what he said is we as Catholics are not just called upon to oppose the death penalty, but to actively work against it. And that's why you have Catholic leadership and Jewish leadership in all of the successful campaigns that have repealed the death penalty. So really uh, my organization can help you with, with material, but the best thing you can do is just be, you know, step into the gap, become the leader. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to own everything. It just means you gotta speak up and say, hey, we should be doing something. I wanna make it possible. And then it's, it's, you know, it's as easy as setting up a computer or sending people a link and saying, hey, I wrote this, I, I signed this petition about the death penalty and I hope that you will too, as a member of our synagogue. Or, you know, uh, uh, Mike has been actually doing sermons, uh, drashes uh, by Zoom in synagogues around the country. And amazingly, one of them was uh, ended up being, he didn't even know this at the time, he ended up doing a, 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 a lesson about the death penalty during a Shabbos service in a synagogue that ends up being the home synagogue for that uh, Jewish man who's on death row in Texas, um, who by the way was supposed to be executed now two years ago, I think, and did not because they are appealing his case on the, the, the fact that the, the judge used anti-Semitic language to refer to him uh, during the trial. And, um, and there was some bias that was pushed out, uh, proved, that was shown there and that's still being litigated. And we'll see what happens in that. That's the Randy Halpern case. Uh, thank you, thank you. A question is, what do you tell, uh, people who uh, say that, isn't it more moral to execute somebody than it is to lock them up forever? I do believe that life without parole or death in prison is not always exactly the answer, but it's all, it's definitely not the answer that we get to kill people. I mean, if you, in, in, in a few places now, you can get uh, an assisted suicide if you have a terminal illness, not in most places, but in a few, uh, but that would be what that really is, is somebody being let off the hook uh, to, you know, in, in, in taking, getting an easy way out uh, of being executed rather than serving out their time in prison. Uh, look, if you've ever been to prison, then you know, you don't wanna go in prison. You don't wanna live there. You don't have to stay even one night. Although I recommend everybody staying at least one night in jail, just so you can get a taste of it and understand what our society is doing to people. Um, and, and rightly so, we deserve to be safe from people who would commit horrible crimes. And people who do those things get to be held accountable. But we don't have to kill them. And in fact, the vast majority of the time, we don't kill them. Uh, and I would say that there are people who don't need to be, there are some people as they presently exist who should never be free, but most people in prison you know, can do their time and with help become productive members of society again. Just one example I mentioned earlier, in 1972, the US Supreme Court struck down the death penalty and took everybody that was on death rows in this country, and change their sentence to the next one, uh, the next highest punishment, uh, which at that time a life sentence meant like you know, 15, maybe 20 years, uh, depending on the state. Well, one person 
guy named Rudy Alexander was on death row in Georgia for a crime he did commit as a 17 year old. He was supposed to be executed because of the Furman decision. His sentence was changed to life. He ended up getting out, pulling himself up. And he just retired a couple of years ago as a fully tenured professor of criminology at Ohio State University. Okay, somebody we should have executed. So people have value and there is space within humanity to change and to, and to shift. That doesn't excuse what people have done, but it just goes to show that you don't have to kill people. And in some cases, there's space for them to be free again. Um, so I don't advocate for life without parole. There are other ways actually to make sure that people who are still dangerous don't get freed. Thank you for that. Thank you. Let's finish off with a question. And I believe this is a pretty common question when we talk about this uh, subject from both the opposition and sometimes even centrist looking uh, folks who think about this. Uh, what do you say to folks who say the death penalty prevents uh, crime because it puts a sense of fear into people who say that with the death penalty, uh, capital murder won't happen? Uh, well, first, there's no evidence that the death penalty is truly a deterrent, except for obviously the person that we execute that, yeah, that person will never kill again. Um, but we can be equally safe from those people with incarceration. And that's what we do all the time. Uh, as to the death penalty actually preventing murders from happening, there's there's actually more evidence to show that the death penalty has caused murders by people who are sick of life and want to die. Um, and, and just like some people choose to try to get a death by cop, make a pull out a gun and hope that, that a cop, uh, a police officer shoots you. Um, it's, it, it, it would be a pretty miserable way if you thought about it to attempt suicide by execution. Uh, but then we do have incidents of people who uh, may not have committed the murder planning to get caught and executed, but once they did, if there was a guy in Florida when I was the director of Floridians for alternatives to the death penalty, he was one of the fastest people from conviction to execution because when he was arrested, he had confessed to a crime, but then he realized that certain elements needed to be in place called aggravating factors in order for him to face a death sentence. Uh, so he changed the story to add more aggravators. And then he told the jury, sentence me to death or I'll kill again in prison. And he demanded that they give him a death sentence and then uh, threatened to kill in prison if, if um if he didn't get a death sentence. So he ended up being executed as a volunteer because he waived his appeals. Uh, another quick example, 20 some years ago, there was an execution of somebody named Carla Faye Tucker. And this is important because she was a woman, uh, which is a rare thing to execute women in this country. But Carla Faye Tucker had, you know, she was known as the ice pick killer because she had put an ice pick into her from her her husband's chest and his, and that of his girlfriend. Uh, but then she found God, became a, a, a born again Christian and all of that, and actually had quite a following of Christians by the time her execution came around. And even Pat Robertson. You know, from the 700 Club, people like that were appealing to President Bush not to execute her. And of course, that execution happened. But you had to be living under a rock to know that, uh, to not know that there was a death penalty in Texas. And uh, the very next day, 
and I was outside the prison when she was killed. Uh, the very next day, just a couple of counties over, somebody shot and killed a police officer. So no, you're not planning to get caught. And in fact, I would argue also that if you're, th if you're afraid of the death penalty from being caught, you're gonna kill even more to try to avoid getting caught. That's my answer to that question. Thank you so much uh, for this amazing presentation. Huge thank you to Rabbi Schmoley for joining us today, for uh, Cantor Michael for, for joining us today on this amazing topic uh, and discussion to really try to think uh, ethically on how we view capital punishment. Um, I wanna recommend a, a documentary on HBO um, called Crazy Not Insane. Uh, make sure uh, if y'all can take a look at this documentary because it was really good and it opened up my eyes to the psychology of, of, of people who get executed and it really dives deep into how the United States um, almost always misses uh, diagnosing people. Uh, huge thank you to all of our speakers, uh, to our, 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 our great friend here, uh, Abe, uh, Abraham. Thank you so much for spending some great, amazing time with us in our, um, our discussion, hopefully.